Welcome to the podcast that puts a finger on the pulse of medicine and technology. On this show, you'll hear from investors, industry executives, and healthcare providers on the science and business of medicine. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib, and this is the State of MedTech. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, and uh, I got a great one for you this week. I always have a good show, um, but this one in particular, we actually recorded this a couple months ago, but we decided to wait to release it this week, mainly because of what's happening next week. See, next week, uh, our industry's most premier and prestigious uh, investor summit, the LSI, Life Science Intelligence Emerging MedTech Summit, is occurring, and this is their European version. They had the USA version, which I had the honor of speaking at earlier this year, and the Europe version is happening next week in London, and our guest today is going to be the keynote speaker at LSI Europe. So who is our guest? Our guest is Antoine Papernick. Uh, Antoine is uh, the chairman and managing partner of Sophie Nova Partners, which is Europe's oldest and uh, largest medtech investment firm uh, with a little over $3 billion in, under management. And Antoine provides such an interesting perspective. He's somebody I really enjoyed having on the show, mainly because having spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, uh, I've met my fair share of venture capitalists and investors. Um, there's plenty that I respect not as many that I respect and admire uh, like Antoine, and you'll see in the episode the reason why. I'm going to read directly from uh, Sophie Nova Partners' new website, which, by the way, shout out to Bobby Lee and her team. This is a really nice website, I got to say, um, and I'm a marketer, and I look at a lot of websites, and this one is really nice, so be sure to go check it out at sophienovapartners.com. So Antoine is the chairman and managing partner at Sophie Nova, and he's been there since 1997, and he has this quote that you know really kind of embodies the kind of investor he is. And the quote says, life science and investing is not just about recognizing good science, it's about people, learning how to interact with co-investors, limited partners, and entrepreneurs, listening, discerning, negotiating, and finding common interests. And for Antoine, when it comes to finding the right people to invest in, he feels that you can bank on them more often than you can predict how the science is going to turn out. And I completely agree, at least I've seen that so many different times in my career. Um, Antoine looks for entrepreneurs with the nibbleness to adapt, even if that means that he's making a major shift from where one starts out on the journey. So Antoine actively invests uh, for Sophie Nova's capital funds, and he's been an initial investor and active board member in a number of public companies. So I want to read these off so you can understand the depth and experience that he has. Um, He's been involved with Acetlion, ProQR, Shockwave Medical, Novus Pharma, which sold to CTI, Movitus, which sold to Shire, Pixium Vision, um, and a lot of uh, trade sales success stories, which include Core Valve, which sold to Medtronic, Favia, which sold to Sanofi, Aventus, Ethical Oncology Science, otherwise known as EOS, we all remember that one, that sold to Clovis Oncology, and Recore Medical, which sold to Atsuka. Um, and so he's just got this breadth of, of investing experience, but more importantly, his story and the way he likes to invest is the thing that I really enjoyed listening to. 
Now, academically, he has a MBA from the Wharton School of Business at Penn and has been selected not once but twice for the Forbes Midas list. And if you're not familiar with that list, it's an annual ranking of the world's top venture capital investors. And he's one of the very few European and life science investors to actually been a, you know been on the list twice. Um, so with that being said, I want to remind the listeners, if you are a physician, you're a nurse, a surgeon, and you need CME or continuing medical education credits, because this was going to be a very popular episode, that's right. Courtesy of our friends over at CMFI, you can unlock an AMA PRA Category 1 credit just by listening to this episode, and the state of MedTech is actually covering the cost. So not do you, not only do you unlock a credit, you get to unlock it for free. That's right. We are fronting the bill for that because that's how we believe we can help the medical community. So once you finish listening to this episode, check the show notes below. Click the link. Go and write a few sentences of something that you learned from the episode and unlock your AMA PRA Category 1 credit thanks to our partners over at CMFI. And if you're a med tech company who's interested in seeing how you can add a CMFI uh, feature to your next podcast, webinar, uh, educational dinner, even demo as an educational partner and one that qualifies to use CMFI, we might be able to help you. Go ahead and send the state of medtech an email at hello at katibandco.com. That's hello, H-E-L-L-O at K-H-A-T-E-E-B-A-N-D-C-O.com. And Last but not least, without further ado, if you like the podcast, do us a favor, just give it five stars, write a quick review. It helps us so much with growing the show. Hey, we have big goals in mind. We want to be in the top 10 podcasts in the medicine category by the end of the year. So with that, let's get on to the show. We appreciate your patience. Here is our episode with Antoine Papernick. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host and head of state, Omar M. Khatib, here at the State of MedTech. I'm joined by a good friend, somebody who I've been really looking forward to interviewing, and that's Antoine Papernick from Sofanova Partners. Sofanova is an extremely well-respected uh, firm in the venture capital world, specifically focusing on the healthcare and medtech space. They're located over in Europe. It's a firm that I've always uh, had a lot of admiration for in terms of their investment thesis, their brand, and more specifically, the kind of startups they invest in. Uh, one of them most recently who I had on the show uh, was Moon Surgical, uh, which has a, a wonderful story about how they're changing the face of uh, surgical robotics. So I wanted to invite Antoine on, uh, who's their managing partner, to talk about what their vision is for MedTech, you know, the story behind it, and more importantly, how does one become a VC? Because everyone wants to know that that question. So, Antoine, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you're joining us from Paris, I believe, correct? I am indeed. Thank you, Omar. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be, to be here with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, before we talk shop, as they say, you know, I think the, the first question that my audience is always going to want to know is like, what's the story behind this person? So what is your story? Where did you grow up? And, and what, what was your life like before you became an investor? That's a long time ago now, Omar. So it's over a quarter of a century. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was uh, born in France. My parents were both physicians. My father was a, an obstetrician, a very famous one in, in, in France and also uh, with a research career. And my mom was a physician and a, a scientist, uh, a research scientist in uh, fundamental research at the French Institute. So that was the world in which I grew. But 
I was not really uh, going for, for science or, or medicine. I went for business, uh, business undergrad. And, you know, I started my career in consumer goods. I worked for Unilever. So it was called health and beauty, but it was mostly perfumes and creams, nothing to do with, with healthcare, to be <laughs> honest. And then I went to the US uh, for an MBA for a number of years after my MBA. This was 30 years ago, if I may say that. It was a time where Eastern Europe was really a cool place to be. And I, and I spent a few years in, in Prague which is a beautiful city, until you know, I was working for this big financial group. And as I said, serendipity learned that this group was setting up a venture capital arm. And I told them, this is for me. And uh, this is when I joined. That was 95, where I became a, a life science investor. Just learned the ropes on the, you know, on the job, had no credentials to be a, uh, an investor. And just you know, grew into this firm. I joined Sophie Nova uh, in 97. So 25 years ago. Wow, fantastic. And, you know, of all the places, like, what drew you to Sofinova? Well, Sofinova is, is a very old firm. It was set up in 1972. So by the time I became a venture investor, the old investor, the ones that had been started uh, this, this business, was already Sofinova. And I met uh, a gentleman called Denis Lucin, and uh, I started co-investing. I was at, at a firm called CDC in France. And we started co-investing and being on boards together. And then one day he said, hey, why don't you join us? You know, for me, that was the firm uh, that I could join. So of course, I, you know, I didn't hesitate at the time. Fantastic. Fantastic. You know, and along the way, I mean, the one thing that I know, at least, in, especially in business and healthcare, is there's this concept of like mentorship. You know, who are some of the mentors that you had along the way? And what kind of things did they teach you? Yeah, I had a number of mentors in my career. I would say if you think about MedTech, there's one man in particular uh, who was the, uh, in fact, he was an, the first CEO that I backed in, in MedTech. I'm talking mm -hmm. about 96 probably, uh, and he's uh, still to this day a, a venture partner of our firm. His name is uh, Gérard Hasquet. Yeah, I invested in his company. Ultimately, this was a great success. We sold the company. It was called Sometech. This was, uh, imagine, um, over a quarter of a century ago. But I learned a lot from him. That taught me a lot about how you treat an entrepreneur, how you're being treated and how you treat someone mm. that you're investing in. And we can talk about that, but, you know, the investor world, you know, uh, people have this idea that, you know, you put money into someone, you're the one in control. But in fact, it's a partnership. And having an entrepreneur that you backed as a mentor, I think, tells you a lot about how you want to treat uh, the entrepreneurs that come uh, after him. So, um, yeah, he, he told me a, lot, a great deal. I completely agree with that. And I think there's definitely this misconception, I think, with investors, which is like when you put money into something, that person works for you. But in fact, it's the other way around. And especially, you know, in today's investing environment, at least all investors I speak with, there's a lot of money right now in the market, but there's not a lot of startups. And so a lot of investors are having to compete now uh, for those startups. And, you know, when I speak to founders, the one uh, thing that I commonly hear is that like, yeah, you know, getting the money isn't the hard part. What we're trying to see from investors is that aside from money, because anybody can give you money, what are we going to get from you in terms of a yeah. partnership, in terms of somebody who's going to help us actually build a business, right? Would you agree with that? Totally. I mean, it's, it's a marriage. You know, once you put the money, in fact, uh, you need to work with that individual through, you know, good times and bad times. And there are always bumps on the road. So if you think, you know, the business plan is one thing, uh, but they will always be bumps. So I have your back, you have my back. This is, you know, ultimately you, you align your interest through that, you know, cap table of the company. And yeah, you, you try and solve issues. And, and you think about, if you think about the company first, not just your interest as, a, as an investor, ultimately, you know, it comes back to you.
And, you know, there are cases, because I think you've interviewed other people in my, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, Andy Weiss, for instance, at, uh, at Recor. I don't know if you know Andy, but uh, uh, he's a great example where the first time, Ryan, when I backed Andy, the company was not successful, you know, and not because of what Andy did. It's because, you know, we opened the box of the trial and the trial didn't exactly, you know, show us what we wanted to see. But did I think this guy was a great entrepreneur? And the answer was yes. So, you know, the next time around, you know, uh, when he came to uh, finding a CEO for Recor, you know, I went back to him. So that tells you a lot about what sort of partnership you need to build, not over a one year, two year, even a five years. It's across deals. And I always ask myself, how do you treat the entrepreneurs that you back? Or even how do you treat the entrepreneurs that you don't back? You know, and you tell them why you're not going to invest in their company, or at least you just give them you know, you, you treat them fairly and with, you know, the respect that, uh, that they're owed, then they will come back to you. Whether you invest in them or not, that is the long view. That's at least what I try to do. Not always easy, but that's what I try to do. No, I think it's a really good point. And it kind of reminds me of that old proverb that, you know, people will rarely remember the things you say, but they'll never forget the way you made them feel. And I think that's absolutely correct, especially like in the world of uh, entrepreneurship. Yeah. I mean, it's not entrepreneurship. It's about human relations. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, why do you want people to be, you know, to be nasty to you to make you feel small? There's no, you know, losing face in front of anybody. You know? So sometimes we see the craziest project, and you may think this is this is just baloney. But sorry for my French here, but you owe them respect. And and sometimes the craziest idea are the best ones. So that goes to a different uh, concept. But I always ask myself, what if they're right? You think that this is crazy, but you ask, what if they're right? And then. Okay, the purpose is, okay, is the risk from you know, where we are today to proving that they're right too high that I may not want to take? Or sometimes, yeah, I think that, uh, that is a risk that I, I think if they're right, it makes a big, big difference to patients, to you know, entrepreneurship, and then, then I want to follow that. We can talk about some of the examples uh, later on. Absolutely. And one thing I noticed in my audience was, and I'm very excited about this, is that there are a lot of young VCs. And when I say young, I mean, you know, uh, venture associates, you know, there's a few that are very, very talented and they're like in their, in their late twenties who listen to the show. But I was wondering, you know, the mentor you mentioned earlier that when you were getting started with your career, aside from great advice, I'm certain there was something very painful that they told you one time that it hurt to hear it, but it was something you needed to hear and changed you. Did you have something like, like that that comes to mind? It doesn't come to mind right now, but, you know, did I get a few, you know, a few hits in the face and, did, you know, things that I said or things that I did in the context of the companies that I hugely regretted? Absolutely. And did I learn from it? Yeah. I've got scars all over my body, <laughs> so uh, I don't want to show it to you, but... Uh, oh, no, no, please. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Know, uh, what, what are some of those things that you learned? Because, you know, that's that's the one thing I think, you know, young professionals, what they are really like starving for and hungry for is to hear from people like yourself who have these like illustrious careers and who have, you know, have these like, you know, scars and, and war stories to learn so that we don't make those mistakes. And at least we learn from them. But like for those young investors who are listening, I mean, if you had like a couple of pieces of advice to them about how they should think, not maybe as an investor, but just as a professional, someone developing their career, what would that advice be? You know, by the way, the mentor that I mentioned, Joe Asquin had the say, still says it today. And I actually say this, which is trying to innovate in the mistakes. You know, mm. try and make new mistakes every day, not the ones that you've made before. So that tells you a way. It's like, 
learn from your mistakes. That's the, the, the normal way people say it. It's a funny job to be an investor because, you, well, you need to trust in the entrepreneurs that you, that you back. You need to want to make money because that's what we are paid for. And at the same time, you need to be patient, which often is not necessarily comes together. And as I said, you know, you need to be humble because there's going to be a lot of bumps. So if you think about the skills that are required, you you need to be to have the grit and the desire to make money. And in general, you know, it's the sort of alpha types who think they are better than anybody else. While at the same time, you need to be humble and try and treat the people in front of you how you want to be treated. So those are not necessarily often found in the same people. And you need to, if you have one of the other traits, you need to build the other. Maybe you are very humble. If you're too humble, you don't have the grit that you might need in order to be to win deals and ultimately do what it takes to make the money. If you're the alpha type, but you you know you don't have the humbleness, the the, the social, the people skills, you know people will hate your guts, mm. and, and then you will never you'll do one deal, but then you know people say this guy, you know you don't want to work with him. You know that's where the balance is, and it's you know in in science they talk about you know I'm not a scientist, but I will use that term. Homeostasis. It's this. I always talk about that. It's it's the 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 stable nature, the unstable cell. You know, there's things that come in and come out. It's never a fixed state. It it goes in and out, and and therefore you need to maintain that homeostasis, whatever you know is being shot at you. Otherwise, you may you know kill the cell. Absolutely. No, and you know, that makes a lot of sense. Cause again, like this is the first time that you and I have spoken, but you know, I've known about Sophie Nova for a long time. And one of the, one of my interests in having you on is that I, I don't remember who it was, but I remember a few years ago, I listened to somebody from Sophie Nova either at a conference or something. And then I had read some articles written by someone from Sophie Nova. And the first thing that kind of struck me was that it sort of uh, showed a spirit of discipline, but this nice balance. Cause with VCs either, they're very, like, very, very, very humble, and and that that's nothing's memorable from that. Or most of the time, they're very aggressive and like full of themselves. And I, I don't like that either. And so when I, I, at least my interactions with Sophie Nova as as an investment firm was this brand and image of discipline and sort of a balance of being aggressive but then being humble at the same time, because you don't get to two to three billion under management just by accident, right? There has to be some competitive edge. Would you agree with that? Is that, is that how you see, see the firm? Well, I, I, I hope uh, you're, you're right. That's certainly the culture that we want to, to maintain. I think we have this culture. We want to make money for our investors. We want to win deals. We want to exit. We want the best for our companies. We want to build giants. You know, I mean, you don't do that if you don't want to build giants. People that ultimately will generate products that will be hugely important to to solve a clinical need. That's the you know that's what drives us. But inside the firm and outside the firm, you know the interpersonal skills. Uh, you cannot be wolves within yourself or with the entrepreneurial community. It's just not, as I said, this is a very short short term view. And in general, you cannot continue in this business. We will celebrate this summer our fiftieth anniversary. So oh, that's fantastic. That's Oh, that's huge. Firm. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's not very many, many firms. I, I didn't talk about the history, but, uh, you know, Sofino was set up in 1972. I mean, you know. The only I ones who I know that. Conceived by then. You no, know, I was not. But the only ones, only other firms I know that, that are that old is like, is Kleiner Perkins. I can't think of many other, other ones. Maybe so two firms. Uh-huh. Two other firms were set up the same year. So, Sofinova, Kleiner Perkins, 
and Sequoia. Sequoia, that's right. So maybe that's the only historical facts that we have in common, but the three of them. And I have to say, I have nothing to do with it. I was, you know, in short trousers, you know, <laughs> and venture capital was certainly not anything that I could think about. But that's a historical fact. So, you know, over that, that 50 year history, over 500 companies created, funded. You learn a few tricks, you know, the things to do, the things maybe not to do. And yeah, there was a path basically to get to where we are today. Very interesting. And we I, are much, much, much smaller than KP and and Sequoia, as 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 you know. But you know, we we know we build ourselves uh, in a way that in our business of life sciences, that today certainly by European standards, but you know, our brand is global. Uh, but in Europe, you know, in Europe, we clearly are, you know, one of the, if not the largest asset manager uh, investing in, in venture and growth in life science. Well, I think that's a good thing, too, that you're not too big. I mean, for the years I lived in Silicon Valley, I mean, I interacted with with different VC firms and some of the, and again, I'm not going to mention any names, but like some of the really big ones, I feel like the word venture was just something that they said, but there was nothing like venture or adventurous about them. They They operated very much like I mean, I felt like like I was dealing with like a massive like investment bank, which is not the way. I mean, no offense to investment bankers, but like that's not as an entrepreneur, that's not who you want to deal with. When you deal with a VC, you want someone who's going to like take a risk and be on the ride with you. You don't want to feel like you're reporting to somebody. Like I, I don't know. There's always this weird feeling. Like either I meet a venture capitalist, I'm like, oh yeah, that's a real venture capitalist, or I meet them, I'm like. They say they're a venture capitalist, but I think this person was just an investment banking. Like gold, Goldman Sachs wants to do venture now, but it's still like you know the same thing. And 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 entrepreneurs don't want that. Now I want to pivot a little bit. No, talk, that's that's true. Yeah, I want to pivot a little bit and talk a little a little shop. I want to get into some of, if you don't mind me calling it this, uh, some of the, your investment thesis as Sophie you know, because it's it's a very interesting year for medtech. And and the reason why is that. We went through 2020 where it accelerated a lot of trends, a lot of trends, uh, both on the clinical side, but also on the commercial side. So limited hospital access, more and more physicians. So, you know, I'm a millennial. So physicians who are millennials in about the next three to five years, the majority of them are going to be in the C-suite making decisions. So their buying behaviors, the way they interact and engage with product has changed. And then the thing that, in my opinion, made this year very interesting is that We've seen tech, SaaS, big tech start moving into healthcare little by little, but nothing big. You know, we saw Google and, and, and Apple like, you know, dabble in it, but nothing that struck me as, oh, they're getting into like healthcare is more on the consumer side. But at the very end of last year, Larry Ellison, after his what, 30 or 40 years at Oracle, makes the biggest investment of his life, not in consumer, not in, in, in SaaS specifically in healthcare and buy Cerner for $28 billion. So those things don't happen by accident. And that's a big sign about what's going to come. So in your, in your mind, what do you think are some big themes that you're looking into this year that, I, that you think that are going to be big for the healthcare industry? And more importantly, um, big for investors to kind of uh, be mindful. Because now we have like almost like a, a combination or a, a fusion of worlds. We have the world of tech and SaaS and everything, and then healthcare which a lot of it is has been kind of going its its own way for a long time. What do you make of all this? Yeah. That was a very long introduction well, yeah, for a question, a few... by the way. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a great question. And it's one that, of course, you know, I, we, we think about a lot because uh, there are a few tectonic plates moving. And, you know, tectonic plates, when they're moving... You just can't put your arms like this and try and, and, and you know, prevent them from, from going one you know, towards the other. So those that are coming, one of which you, you just mentioned, which is the, the tech world going into, into healthcare, 
it's coming. It says there's no way that this is going to change. And certainly COVID has accelerated this in a massive manner. People are just figured it out. Say, oh my God, of course, the digital aspects merge with computation, you know, data computation, it makes total sense. And that is not just a, a fact. This is coming big time everywhere. It's coming from, of course, the consumer, but this is not what we're talking about here. It's about uh, drug development, drug discoveries. That's more on the, on, on the pharma side. Clearly, on the medtech side, it's going to be become central in assessing patients. So, you know, the diagnostic, what used to be called diagnostic is now, you know, encompassing so many more things where, you know, closed loops and making sure you understand the status of your patient and then being able to act to, towards it. So, and then, of course, all the way to therapeutics, you know, the Achilles of the world, the people who are actually developing solutions that are digital in nature that will ultimately make a difference to patients just by, you know, so the digital therapeutics part of that broader digital health or digital medicine. So I think that's, it's not coming, it's here. It's just, we haven't seen, it's the tip of the iceberg that we're seeing and what you're describing with Ellison, uh, uh, is just a, a, uh, a, you know, a, a, a small example of what's, what's coming. So this is clearly, and, you know, we used to look at this with some, I wouldn't say concern, but some concern about how do we make money uh, mm -hmm. with that field. Today, the business model, it's about, you know, is there business models? Are there business models out there using SaaS in the context of, of healthcare that ultimately will, will generate returns? That's the only thing that we need to do. If you look at even a, I mean, a European transaction that, that closed not so long ago, which is Cardiologs being acquired by Philips, great example, purely a SaaS model, you know, revolutionizing something that has not changed for a century, which is, you know, ECG, you know, cardiac monitoring. Okay. But this makes a big difference to a company like Philips and therefore they acquire Cardiologs. That's a great example. So that's one of the tectonic plates that, uh, that is moving. Interesting. The other one that is even, I wouldn't say it's larger, but it's coming from a different angle. It's the world of private equity going into uh, healthcare. You, you, you beat me to it. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't know how to feel about this, to be honest with you. Look, let's talk about feelings next. First of all, it's coming. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like it's what I said about tectonic plates. You know, this thing is coming. Okay. There's North America that's moving towards Europe or whatever, the opposite. It's coming. So, and this is where the money is. If you think about the big world of where private capital is being raised, so that private equity world, the, the big P platform that come through healthcare, through um, you know more traditional buyout opportunities, you know, from hospitals to uh, healthcare services, with you know EBITDA being one of the metrics that that, that they need to abide uh, to. But they've looked at this industry for a long time, not being able, not not having the metrics to be able to to play in that industry. COVID also has accelerated this because it created, as I mentioned, giants. If you think about, of course, the you know the uh, the companies uh, that that came up with uh, with vaccines, Moderna, you know, in, in the US, you know, BioNTech in, in Europe, creating giants that today are multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars in, in market cap. So that attracts the big whales, you know, mm -hmm. the big guys in there. So that's another trend. There's still, I think, a distance, but I think it's, but it's happening. News. It's good news for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's also good, uh, Antoine, it's good for, for healthcare. Because one thing that I've noticed is that with a lot of investments, I mean, what investor doesn't want to invest in the next Uber, or Facebook, or Twitter? The problem with healthcare is that it's not like that. It takes a lot of time and effort, and it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that 
at least these different options will make sure that these really innovative, because there's, I think of how many great medical technologies uh, were developed. They didn't make it to market because they couldn't raise enough money, not because they weren't clinically viable or, or brought any, any value. It's because they just couldn't raise enough money from the right investors. Do you feel like that? That's, that's one, what, one positive of all of this? Absolutely. And, and finally, I would say, as I said, you know, having this quarter of a century, outlook on things you know it's we have our companies our entrepreneurs have the money to be able to take it all the way i mean that was not the case if you think about two examples with different life you know uh, at 15 years difference in my own career uh, if you think about you know, core valve or shockwave you know two mm-hmm. examples uh, you know uh, i must have invested in in core valve in 2002 or 3 i can't remember exactly and i have in, so almost 20 years ago and Shockwave, that was a good 15 years later. And you know, Shockwave found the way, uh, of course, the public markets were there at the time, but also found the way even privately to, to raise money to ultimately become a billion-dollar uh, company and with um, the debt basically that it had. In the case of, of Corval, uh, again, we can, talk, we can go back to that, but I just wanted to give you that perspective. At 15 years difference, Corval, it was very difficult to think that we could raise the hundreds of millions of dollars that were needed privately in order to bring the company where you need to go. So at some point, it was the obvious choice, which, by the way, was a fantastic choice, uh, I would say, first of all, for patients, because, you know, Medtronic did an awesome job in bringing this, uh, this product to market, making this, you know, a standard of care. And I think that's, that's outstanding. Those two examples, I think, for me, is the tale of, you know, what happened uh, between one and the other, which is our ability to fund companies to where they need to go. And if you put this in the context of both the tech world and the PE world, just interested in the space, outside of what the public markets you know, do, and as you know, right now, it's not you know, a fantastic period over the last few months, and that's a euphemism, it gives you hope that you will be able to fund those companies to become giants. Interesting. In terms of where you sit right now, with all these changes happening in the market, and, and I like your analogy of, of saying that like tectonic plates is actually a perfect analogy to explain what's happening because they are like very much like forces of nature that you just can't stop. You see it coming, so you can't do anything about it. There has to be some changes also from your side in terms of when you guys are raising money and dealing with LPs and for the audience that's limited partners, have LPs changed in terms of their, their behaviors and, and what they're looking for these days as, as well? Or what does that look like? Yeah, I think there's a lot of change uh, in the LP community and what, they, what they're looking for outside of returns. You know, when I joined Sophie Nova, we were, we were managing a fund. Uh, it was called Capital Two. That was, you know, we, we had only one strategy. That was the early stage strategy. And Capital Two was a 47 million euro fund, which by today's standards, that's it's a lot. I not say, even yeah. a seed fund. But that was this, was, time, this was 20. Yeah, this was 30. Uh, no, no, 30, 30 or 40 years ago. 25 years or ago. 25 years yeah, ago. 25 years ago. Yeah, it's 47 yeah, million the, back then was a lot. It was a lot. It was the largest fund in Europe dedicated to this strategy. Now, the early stage fund, uh, the one that invested in, in Corval and in Shockwave and uh, we can talk about some of the other examples, is 472. So it's mm. 10 times the size. Mm-hmm. It's still not 5 billion because we think that's adapted to doing early stage investing. The change that we've uh, done over the last you know, a decade, let's say, is you, know, you need funds that are able to invest at different stages in their life. You need people who are able to 
create from scratch companies. And this is something that we created called MD Start, which is our accelerator within Sophie Nova. You, you, were, you interviewed an Ozdua uh, from Moon. She's also a partner in MD Start, the uh, accelerator uh, on, on, on the Sophie Nova platform. That's a product that did not exist in Europe. You had a number of those uh, accelerator, the foundry in the US and a number of others. But in Europe, there, there was no uh, such thing. So you need products that are able to spend the time, the energy, the care to start something from scratch, which is what uh, you know Anne did with, uh, with, with Moon. You, know, you need the early stage, but you also need the later stage. So back to your question of what the LP wants. The LPs, they want to have a broader view of the market. Investing in a small fund is more complicated to them. The size of the LPs are such nowadays that they need to have funds that are large enough for them to represent only a small fraction of the fund. And if you want to invest 100 million, you need to have funds that are ultimately, uh, you need to do that in funds that are large enough. You mean diversified enough, right? When you say large enough, do you mean, is that on the side of, the, of diversity or literally large enough? Well, both. Meaning you need the diversity of a portfolio, but you need to be, to have, you need to, you can only represent, let's say 10% of the fund in which you invest. That's 10, 15%. That's probably the maximum, maybe 20% in some cases. So the large LPs, the big sovereign funds of this world, the big pension funds, they are more comfortable with larger platforms, either larger funds or platforms like ours, where we have a number of strategies that cover you know, several different distinct elements of the of the, the value chain of life science investing. So we have LPs, for instance, who will put a little bit of money in the early stage funds, but they will put a, a, some money into the latest stage funds. And that's how they reconcile the fact that we invest in life sciences. They, they diversify their own risk across different products on our platform. I see. I see. Interesting. One of the things I want to ask you about is... You know, with regards to these funds, as you mentioned, like they, they have to be diversified in many ways. Aside from your traditional, let's say, drug discovery and medtech and biotech, how does Sofinova look at some of these newer models, specifically SaaS? Because one of the one of the questions that I always ask, I'm going to ask it again at LSI, which uh, is such a fantastic conference, is who's going to disrupt the business models right now in, in healthcare, which is like in robotics, for example. It's been the classic razor, razor blade model for so long. Hospitals are getting tired of it. And I'm always wondering, is it going to be a med tech player that comes up with a new business model, say like a true SaaS model, or is it somebody from tech? How do you guys look at those kind of investments? Because the problem is that if it's, if it's let's say, a, a, a traditional med tech player or just somebody who, who's you know from a medical background, medical device background, they don't have that background in SaaS, right? So that's kind of new. Versus if, let's say, you're investing in a SaaS company, they have those models, but they have not been in healthcare yet. And so they don't understand how this world works. And I, I feel very like traditional saying that, but that's really true. I mean, how do you weigh those out? You know, I feel like that that's a really difficult well, thing to choose. Yeah. So, I mean, if I had to choose, I think I feel, and I'm of course, you know, speaking for, you know, uh, for, for Sophie over here, you know, we have the knowledge, we, you know, Omar, uh, myself, we are in our community have the knowledge of the healthcare field. And the knowledge means, of course, knowledge about the indication, the knowledge about the regulatory path, the knowledge about you know, getting those products approved by the FDA or by other uh, you know, authorities, issues with reimbursements, which are absolutely gigantic. You know, those are very difficult skill sets to acquire. I'm not saying that the SaaS part is not, but I'm saying that if you are addressing this market and you see a lot of players coming in, 
not just to take investors, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, entrepreneurs that come from tech that want to revolutionize uh, healthcare. I think that's in a way it's more difficult because the knowledge that you that you need to have in order to really be successful in a field that is a hugely regulated field. Ultimately, if you consume a product, no. But our business is a very regulated field, and and the understanding of that you know, takes a lot of uh, you know a lot of, of time to mature. So uh, in a way, I feel uh, we're better equipped to be able to to participate as long as we are able to think through what is the disruption, where is the disruption. So thinking that things are not changing is not the right approach here. You mm-hmm. know, I'm t- talking about you know cardiologues and someone who takes a completely different approach to solving an old problem will have a great chance to win. So we thought this was maybe not yet clear that the business models had, had evolved to, to a point that uh, uh, these were investable uh, fields. The last few years has demonstrated that they are. So you know we are today clearly looking at that field of digital medicine because we think that will be one of the ways to revolutionize um, our, our industry. And when you say digital digital medicine, because when, when I when I hear that, a lot of different ideas and types of technologies come up. When you say digital medicine, what are, what are those kind of things that Sophie Dope is looking at and saying, we really feel that this is going to be potentially the future. We're going to take bets on this. Like what kind of technologies do that look like? And feel free to, you can be kind of vague about it because you don't need to mention any companies, but if you want to mention companies, feel free to. But when you say digital medicine, what does that mean to you? Digital medicine is a subset of digital health and it goes from Digital therapeutics, and I mentioned uh, Aki, but there are a number of other, of course, examples of digital products that ultimately uh, treat patients. Aki doing uh, ADHD, uh, attention deficit uh, treatment, to all the other things uh, that are ways to treat basically new data or subsets of data to generate biomarkers that ultimately will help you either develop new drugs or help you drive medical device uh, to better treat the patient. So it's not sort of a two-way marketplace that are more consumer-driven. That's to, to us outside of the, of, the, uh, of the digital medicine definition. And it's much more about data and about uh, clinical evidence, in fact, throughout the development of drugs or device to being a, a product, that uh, a digital product that treats a patient. Is that... That makes sense. Clear enough yeah, no, no, that makes it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and 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 I, and I think that from a definition standpoint, that's good because that's the one thing I always get from my audience is that when we talk about digital health, it means so many different things. So I'm I'm glad you you mentioned that. And it makes and and I agree I agree with that completely. And just out of curiosity, again, it's asking this question is like kind of like an asking a parent like who's your favorite child. I'm not going to ask you who's your favorite company. Don't worry. But what what I'm curious is that you personally. You know, there's all these very exciting, interesting areas of med tech healthcare that are emerging. What are some specific types of technologies or markets that you personally have gotten more interested in? If you look at my track record, I'm a, a very classical uh, investor in the sense that I like products that ultimately will treat patients, things that you implant in patients or drugs uh, that also, uh, is, you know, I've, I've done uh, a fair, a fair share of, of drug investing. If you're asking specifically about these new models, the SaaS models and, and digital medicine, you know, when I think about the contribution that this field can do on things like mental health, for instance, I think there are hugely exciting things that can, that can happen. You know, look, I, we, but I, I dabble in this, in this field. I'm, I'm not the expert. Other people in our firm are the expert. I am actually amazed by the quality, the diversity of the deal that we see in that space. As I said, my, my own track record is more 
no core valve and shock wave and you know reflection and you know things that mm. I can touch that ultimately I will see the, the clinical result. But you know, you know, we, the firm is is really evolving, and the, all the the skill sets that we have inside the firm, you know, allows to 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 capture uh, this this wide diversity in types of deals. Is there something that uh, you know maybe like? I don't want to call it a new area, but like for Sophie Nova, again, you know, you have a very wide and you, by the way, congratulations on the new website. I'll be leaving that in the show notes for people to check out. And you guys have a very wide uh, uh, diversity of portfolio, but is there like, you know, perhaps like a new area, new markets that uh, Sophie Nova is starting to venture into aside from just, let's say, digital medicine? Is there anything, you know, particular that comes up? Because again, like, you know, I don't want to get off on a tangent on this, but like, especially the big, the big themes of 2022 is like web three and blockchain and crypto and all these things, which, you know, I think they're going to have great applications in medicine, but you know, it's still might be too early on. I'm very much like you where I'm more focused on, well, how's this going to help the patients like right away? Not something that's going to take 20, 30 years, but any kind of new emerging markets that you guys are looking at? Yeah. So back to digital medicine, because I think this is a very important new field uh, for everyone. And I think, you, you know, being very uh, open and aware of what's going on there, I think that that's going to be, be a big, big component of, of any venture groups uh, involved in healthcare, in my, in my view. Uh, as a firm, we've also done something that may be of less interest to you, but we believe that, you know, biotech uh, has applications outside of healthcare in mm. fields that are more uh, towards sustainability. So we have actually a whole team that is looking at biotech for applications that are uh, more in uh, agriculture and food and material. Interesting. So, and here you leverage all the work that's been done over the last 50 years in the biotech uh, world, but ah. to create you know, products that are sustainable, things you can throw on fields that are not chemical in nature, but derived from from nature. Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, one of the fields that we have. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. That's very, because usually you hear it other way around where, you know, things are used in like animal models, et cetera. And then you go through FDA and, and use it in humans. But this is actually very interesting because especially now with sustainability, it's such an important thing. And if something has the ability and strength to get through FDA regulation and all these different regulations in healthcare, then it's going to be that much better, you know, in the sustainability project. That's a fascinating thesis. That's the first time I've heard that. That's very interesting. Well, that's no, that's those no, are the I kind think, of things you know, exactly we, what the shows shows for. No, no, that's very interesting. You know, I think if you think my kids are in their twenties, and and you know the the way they see the world uh, is completely different than what you know uh, we saw the world when I was in my twenties. I think the importance of healthcare is critical, but the importance of you know, making sure we don't mess up with the planet on the way is also incredibly important. So if you can ally both together and biotech or means or technologies that have been used in healthcare can actually play a role there. So again, that's that's not stricto sensu healthcare because it's, you know, things that are applications of others, but it's ultimately it's good for, you know, it's good for humanity for sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this is a very interesting, you know, way to look at it because, you know, when you look at certain models, you know, and the problem with economic models is that the farther out you go, the, the less accurate they are. But a lot of them assume that nothing's going to change. But you have firms like Sophie Nova that are finding its, uh, using its expertise in biotech and medtech and then translating that outside of that industry to have these bigger impact uh, projects like in sustainability. Those are the kind of things that are really inspiring and, and, and great to hear that firms like that do exist. And it's, you know, beyond just, you know, again, 
Sophie Nova exists because it has to, it has to, you know, make, make a return for its investor. But the bigger part of it is that how do we take what we're really, really good at and expert at and translate this in other fields to make, you know, bigger and greater impact? I think that's a great theme that a lot of investors should try, try and keep in mind. Well, thank you for, for saying this. And that's exactly what we think. You know, it's like if you could think about life sciences as ways that you could uh, save people, but also partially save the planet or at least contribute to to making our planet a better place. I think, you know, that's that's that's, that's really what uh, makes uh, the whole team at Sophie Nova wake up in the morning. It's uh, the idea that you make a contribution, financial to our LPs for sure, but you have a broader contribution uh, to the world, uh, you know, saving people, thanks to the entrepreneurs that we back, and then, um, you know, helping bring technologies that ultimately will, uh, will, will have a sustainable impact on the on the you know on, on the, our environment no absolutely and antoine i want to be mindful of your time i know you have a call in a few minutes we're going to keep you just for a couple more minutes and then let you go is that okay that's fine thank so you so what we're going to do um you know and definitely i i hope i know you're very busy so i appreciate you carving out time coming on the show i want to have you back as a guest you know maybe you know uh, with some of your team that'd be a lot of fun we can talk talk more about these things for this next segment let's do, we're going to do something that i call a rapid fire question so i'm going to ask you questions you can answer them as quickly as you'd like, you know, or take as long as you want, you know, and then I'm going to keep an eye on time. So that way you're not, uh, you don't have to be too late for a meeting. So my first question to you is that, you know, again, in your career, one of the things I've learned from investors, specifically in venture capital is that you are experts at learning. You have to be a machine to, you know, because you're evaluating, you know, investments, you're evaluating companies. So you have to learn about the market, the company, the, you know, all these different things. So, of course, I would imagine you translate this to your personal life in terms of kind of books you read. What's a book that has really had an impact on your life? And it could be any kind of book that you feel that you recommend most often to professionals, people in general. Any, any books that come to mind that really had an impact on, on your life? There's a few, I guess. There's one that pops to mind. It's a book called The, the Hair with Amber Eyes. And that's, it's a book about you know, family between the 1800s and post-war. And I, it sounds silly to think about this, but I think back to what I would, one of my mentors that I mentioned said is like, make new, new mistakes. And when you think about history, <laughs> there's a lot of mistakes that were done, not just mistakes, massive, you know, colossal decisions that were taken by, by wrong people. So always thinking about, let's try and avoid those. And when you look, when you read books that are, this was actually, a, it's, a, it's a biography, and reading about this family, all the troubles that they went through a long period of time, the personal uh, horrendous things they lived, I think that, you know, it teaches you that we live in this history and we sh should learn from the past. So that's just one book that came to mind. That's fantastic. I had one last question. This is the first time uh, in my, like many years of podcasting that this last question is already been answered. And I'm, I'm going to answer it for you, unless you have something different. My last question usually for this rapid fire is that, you know, let's pretend that I took a billboard out. And in this case of, you know, of the digital age, a, a phone notification where every morning entrepreneurs, investors, they wake up and see this one message on there. What message would you put? And the one that you've mentioned and it is really stuck with me is always make new mistakes. Always make new mistakes. I think that's a very, very good one. Unless you have something even better than that to put on the notification. <laughs> you know, if you're stuck in your ways, you go nowhere. The good thing about new mistakes is that, you know, you need to be out there trying to make those new mistakes. The easiest thing to do is do nothing. Then you're not going to make a mistake and all the new. Yeah, you need to put yourself in a situation where you put yourself at risk. It means believing in an entrepreneur on, you know, what if he or she is right? And with a risk that he or she is wrong. 
that's a new mistake because you believe in something new. When it becomes real and you've actually were proven right, of course, the financial returns is there, but it feels you feel so proud. And, and so it's an amazing feeling to think that you have contributed to something that few people thought was possible that ultimately became reality. That's why we wake up in the morning. That's why I wake up in the morning. That's fantastic. And, and what a great way to end. And, you know, it's been such a pleasure uh, uh, interviewing you. You know, one thing that I, I try and live my life for uh, by and, and build my family around is this concept of honor, discipline, respect. And it's something that you clearly embody. And so does Sophie Nova. And, and thank you again for coming on the show. You're going to have to come back on because I feel like we could have gone for another hour or two talking about a lot of stuff. That's just a good good reason for you to come back on for a second time. That's a deal. That's a deal. Awesome. With pleasure. Awesome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Stay on for one second. We'll chat. Thank you all for listening. This is Antoine Papernick. I'm going to leave uh, links in the show notes to his uh, his LinkedIn as well as Sophie Nova's uh, website. Go check them out. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib. This is another episode of the State of MedTech, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of The State of MedTech. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib. Do us a favor. If you like this episode, share with somebody and go ahead on Apple and Spotify, wherever you are, leave a five-star review. Type a few nice notes about us. This is how we get other people to find the show. Thank you. We'll see you next time. 